Hey, listener. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. Are you tired of searching all over the internet for just the right podcast? Well, Moose Media Inc.'s got you covered. If it's the horror and the macabre that sends chills up your spine, then Moose's Monster Mash is the show for you. Or, if you prefer hearing stories from pop culture icons of the past, present, and future, Bull Spit with Moose has your name written all over it. Just give me a follow over on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. And if there's not an episode between those two shows that you like, that Twitter account is backed by a double your money back guarantee. And that, my friends, is no Bull Spit. What's up? It's Greg Sutton's voice of Beast Boy from Teen Titans. Go yelling, Teen Titans. I love you, peace-loving animals. And Booyakasha from Michelangelo from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a whole bunch of other cool things. But mostly I'm a servant of God. And you're watching Bull Spit with Moose. Tune in. That's what's up. Hey, Paul. Look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bull spit. <laughs> Welcome, Moose Pack, to an all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. Today's guest is a very talented actor and improvisationalist. You might even say he can come up with things on the McFly. From hey. Second City to the Second Back to the Future, please welcome the very talented Jeffrey Weissman. How's it going, Paul? Do, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? All right, I'll, I'll do my best Bullspit for you. <laughs> so I, I like Bullspitting with people. <laughs> I was, I was like, uh, do I, do I address you as Bullspit or Moose or Paul? You can call me anything but late for dinner. Bada boom. So how's life treating you? I'm thrilled for stuff like this because uh, I'm able to keep the connection with the friends and fans uh, like you and around the country, around the world. Did you start looking at improv first or acting first? Well, I suppose it was improving as a child. My, my family said that I think I uh, I came out of the womb as a ham. Uh, there are stories of me in, in my high chair at the dinner table doing things like uh, spouting anything that could get me into trouble. I, I said, shit, from my high chair. So when your mom was pregnant, you were a canned ham. <laughs> yeah, that, they, 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 they stopped. They dropped their, their forks and said, Jeffrey, where did you learn a word like that? And I, I looked around. And my, I guess my brother was the farthest one away. So I said, Michael. Mikey, and he dropped his fork. And said, hey, "No, I, no, I didn't, me. Show, I didn't say that." This is like 1961 or something, and and uh, and I apparently said, "Oh, Mikey, you know I liar." <laughs> okay. <laughs> they they even called me uh, uh, old faithful when I uh, I had my diapers changed. I'd pee in their eye. You know, it. Uh, I guess I just needed attention, and and. Uh, I remember as a real young, my babysitter took me to my dad's club. My dad used to run these gambling clubs, uh, bridge and backgammon and such on the Sunset Strip and West Hollywood, else different clubs. And we met Omar Sharif, and I watched my babysitter, who I was really fond of, uh, Susie, and she kind of flipped out over meeting Omar Sharif. And then we went to the theater and saw him on the big screen in a movie. Uh, and she flipped out again. I was like, wow, that's how I get, get her attention. I'll become an actor. And then flash forward to grade school. I, I, with my reports on 
history. I would do uh, later on, like you would see on Saturday Night Live, little reports from different time periods doing satire on interviewing the pharaoh and uh, from Egypt, live from Egypt, you know, and silly things like this. And I, I also I remember on the way home, graduating from the fourth grade, uh, an episode of the FBI. Ephraim Zimbalis Jr. was shooting on location near where I lived in the Play Del Rey. And I met, I recognized the guest star was Monty Markham, who was from a show called The Second Hundred Years at that time. And he liked it that I recognized him. And uh, he was called to set, uh, and but I was left t- chatting with this character actor, kind of a tough guy character actor, who said, uh, what do you got there? Is that your report card, kid? And he took it from me and I said, yeah. And I said, you know, I want to be an actor too. And he said, well, what, you know, that's good. You got an A in English and a B in history. What's this D, this D in math? Listen, kid, you got to do better in math. How are you going to know if a, your agent's cheating you or not? Sage advice. <laughs> so apparently my dream of being an actor, you know, it, I, my mom had been an actress, but she dropped it all. But she had done some stage and, and B-movies and such. and But she dropped it all when she started having babies. And uh, so I, I thought maybe I was the only actor in my family for a long time. But uh, my folks, because of these clubs, always saw actors as smoking and gambling and swearing and drinking. And they didn't want that life for me. Uh, my dad would come home and said, Jeffrey, today, you know, I, I had a little chat with Don Adams. You know who Get Smart is on, on TV? I go, yeah. And he says, uh, I said, uh, my kid wants to be an actor, Don. Will you have any advice? And he said, Wally, tell him to forget about it. It's <laughs> it's 10% talent and 90% pure luck. And who you know? Or whatever. Anyways, uh, so the I really couldn't, as much as I wanted to, I had friends, I, I was friends with Anissa Jones from Family Affair as a kid, and, and I knew uh, uh, Lisa Gerritsen, uh, and I knew, uh, you know, various other kid actors growing up, like I, uh, before the, we started, I mentioned Terry Nunn, who was acting uh, during high school, and, and I wasn't, I, I, yeah, I guess I was jealous, because my parents wouldn't let me an agent they they wouldn't let me go and and work as a kid but i could work in school so i did theater in school junior highs really kind of kicked it in gear i had a a a teacher kind of push me into the talent shows and then put me in the lead in a big production which all the seniors of course were pissed off that the pipsqueak got the best part (laughs) you know and and that was a reoccurring thing I, i I uh, kept getting these nice roles and then getting picked on by the older actors who were jealous because I was I was really a ham. I wasn't acting so much as as I was showing off or kind of ego driven. It was it was it was rough because I I paid for it with <clears throat> some bad pranks and uh, remember uh, the the seniors took the sophomore who was the lead in the big production of the, uh, in my high school the day of the dress rehearsal and got me for the first time really rip roaring drunk on on uh, screwdrivers. And I walked into the theater for the dress rehearsal. The teacher, the uh, director, said, "Oh, you're here finally. Uh, are you ready to get 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 on stage?" And I said, "Sure." And I threw up on his feet. <laughs> and uh, it was not good. You know, I had little mannequin heads in my dressing room with a knife in them with ketchup on it and a little note saying, "You're next, Jeff." You know, it was, it was bad. I loved doing. Uh, theater, and I loved doing films with my uh, 
student filmmaker friends back in high school and such, uh, and learned how you know to take the the bumps. What do you say? The knocks, the hard knocks, and and uh, learned my lesson a few times the hard way. But uh, I still I couldn't get it out of my system. And so when I got out of high school, my my parents finally gave me a little money to get professional headshots done, and I paid to get on uh, a list for a waiver extras, you know, where you could get on a movie set in a big studio uh, without having to be union because I just, I was dying to get on sets and I wanted to see what it was all about and what it was like and if I liked it. And I started going out on these crowd scenes, one in FM. And uh, a good fun story on that one. Uh, we were all given uh, food tickets to get our meals, lunch or dinner uh, at the caterers because uh, there was a phantom, they call it the phantom of the back lot. A guy, apparently a disgruntled teamster, uh, was living on the back lot, beating up the security guards and the cleaning people and eating with the cast and crews and, and living on it. So they said, well, we'll get, we'll get this guy. We'll find who doesn't have a ticket. I don't know if they ever got the guy. All I have to do is uh, beat somebody up and take their ticket. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So that was that was in the riot scene at the radio station. I'm, I'm down in that, and it was really fun. Long, long hours, you know. Of course, that any film has long hours generally. Uh, but Martin Mull was so much fun to work with because he was always kidding and being friendly. It was what a great. You could tell his heart was in his work and and with people. It was it was pretty cool. I like that. What other films? Uh, the, I want to hold your hand, which was uh, Zemeckis. I think one of his first films. And that was a strange one in that it was supposed to be January outside the Beatles hotel room in 63, I guess, in New York. And, you know, freezing and snowing. <clears throat> but we're shooting in the back lot. Of, I think it was a Universal or Warner Brothers, but probably Universal. And in between takes, they had to keep watering down the sidewalk. It was like 105 degrees. Jeez. And all these dozens and dozens of Beatle fan extras are bundled up and they're dropping like flies from heat prostation. You, you had two Beatles connections. There was yeah, I want to hold your hand and then Sergeant Peppers. Right. And in, in, uh, I want to hold your hand. I'm a Ringo fan. And I remember Zemeckis, I don't think was confident yet in, in directing crowds. So some young up and coming director named Steven Spielberg directed us. <laughs> uh, and then uh, this nobody uh, director who's not going anywhere. <laughs> well, I think he had I think he'd already had a little success with a thing called Jaws. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. I was first brought in the first scene I worked on, I believe, was playing Strawberry Fields, very sweet actress who played that role. I was playing her brother in the scene where the Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees as the band go up in the hot air balloon. And they stuck me with her mom and dad and sister who are all fat. And I was a skinny guy, so I was kinda lost in that crowd. Uh then I'm in the Earth, Wind, and Fire, Got to Get You Into My Life crowd scene. That was a lot of fun to be part of that. And then I got cast as a kind of dancer upgraded contract where I could have actually joined the union because I was doing some dance moves and got union pay for the first time uh, in the scene where Alice Cooper is brainwashing us. Uh, we're brainwashed Boy Scouts, I think is the credit I gave myself. And I remember at the time, you know, I, oh, I made $350. That's what it cost to join the Screen Actors Guild back then. Jeez. It was $350 in 77 or 78. And, uh, but I was like, oh, but I got to pay my rent. Rent or join the guild. Rent or join the guild. Hmm. 
paid my rent. But I was very fortunate, you know, in 70, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit, about 73 or 4, I heard Mel Brooks was shooting a film uh, in Santa Monica where I was going to school and living. So I walked home from school in the old promenade and started seeing uh, extras, people in, in Victorian evening wear. So I figured, oh, the film must be shooting around here somewhere. And I saw a, a, a large gentleman in Victorian wear with his mustache sort of flapping. I said, excuse me, sir, your your mustache is flapping, is coming off. And he said, oh, is it? Oh, dear. And said, who are you? And I said, I'm an actor. And he says, oh, yeah, what have you been in? I said, uh, I Merchant of Venice, The Dark of the Moon, you know, I, uh, shows at high school. Um, he says, really? You want to meet Mel? I said, Brooks, yes. Yes. And he said, come with me. <laughs> and so we went to the Mayfair Music Hall, where I uh, had seen your previous guest, Sandy Grin, in uh, production just a year or two before where they were shooting the putting on the Ritz number. <laughs> and, and the first person I meet is is Marty Feldman. And he's in street clothes, but I knew him from his TV show. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Marty Feldman. And I was very impressed. He was wearing a man bag. And, you know, I, I carry a man bag now, uh, honoring Marty. Um, but uh, And then seeing Peter Boyle there made as the creature, made up as the creature, he looked incredible. Uh, and I was really disappointed when it came out in black and white because you can see the wonderful green shades of makeup that Peter Boyle's makeup was. But nonetheless, so Roy Wallach, this uh, professional extra, uh, took me in to meet Mel. And uh, he said, Mel, you want to meet this kid? And, and Mel just sort of like racing by says, I have no time for kids. <laughs> I'll be and over the years, I've I've met Mel several times. I, my Marx Brothers team auditioned for him on Men in Tights for the big banquet scene. Um, and years later, I'm at the old silent movie house, and, and uh, my friend Dom DeLuise is there. Who Dom, over the years, he and I were in Johnny Dangerously in a scene together and became friendly. And Dom, when he saw me playing Stan Laurel, Laurel and Hardy at Universal, he insisted that my team warm up his new candid camera audience, you know, entertain the line or whatever. He always made sure we were there for like his publicity things he did when he voiced the cat for the Meifel, Meifel, the Feifel Mouskowitz, the American Tales show nice. up there. Uh, some great stories with Dom, but this one at the silent movie house one night, it was a Buster Keaton festival. I remember the week before the owner of that place got assassinated by his, his lover hired a gun to kill. Anyway, bad. I sidetracked too much. Um, and at the intermission, Dom is with Mel and Anne, Anne Bancroft, uh, Mel's wife, having a smoke out front. And I come out to say hi to Dom, and, and Dom says, Mel, Anne, look at this boy. This is Jeffrey, uh, Stan Laurel, Groucho Marx, Charlie Chaplin, well, whoever he plays. You think they're there? He's incredible. And, and I said, um, actually, Mr. Brooks, uh, my, my Marx Brothers team auditioned for Men in Tights for you. And, he go, and, and Mel said, I remember you guys. I liked you guys. I really wanted you. But I had to cut them out of the scene because the actor playing Don Corleone in the scene wanted too much money. And I had to find the money somewhere. At that point, I realized Dom DeLuise played Don Corleone. And I turned to a Dom and I started choking him. <laughs> that is a good story. But I digressed. Uh, my, I sidetracked. Uh, so after um, Sergeant Pepper's. Uh, I, I also was auditioning for theatrical theater projects, and I was auditioning for, I think it was Brighton Beach Memoirs down at uh, the 
Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, uh, the music center, whatever theater down the Mark Taper Forum. And Gordon Hunt, Gordon Davidson, uh, said, kid, you know, you got talent, but no one's going to take you seriously because you don't have any training on your resume. I was like, but I worked in school all of a sudden he goes i said what, what do you recommend he goes well get yourself to juilliard and i said you know i don't think my parents are gonna are gonna support me much going east to juilliard um anything on the west coast and he said act the american conservatory theater so i set my sights on going to the american conservatory theater and i i had been working since 73 or so at the Renaissance Fairs, and they had a fair up north I'd been working in uh, Novato, north of San Francisco in Black Point. And so I moved north with the fair in 78, I think it was, and set my sights on getting into ACT. And it took me a couple of years, and I finally did get accepted into their uh, summer training congress and then into their master's program. So while training uh, in my intermediate studies between ACT and San Francisco State, I fell into an opportunity. I went to an open call for a motion picture they had posted in the lobby of the theater department at San Francisco State looking for a, a, an 18-year-old actor for a, a major motion picture. I was like, God, well, I'm by now I'm like 20, 21. And my friend Lincoln, whose dad was the founder, artistic director of the committee, who told his son Lincoln, you, you can't be an actor. I said, Con, Lincoln, you should go for this because you're 18. And uh, you can show up your dad and say, fuck you. You know, I can't act. <laughs> and then the day of the audition, uh, Lincoln didn't want to go unless I went with him. And I was just like recently hung over from being at my, my girlfriend at the time's uh, graduation party at Santa Cruz. But anyway, I went with him. And it was, a, it was an open call that had 500 guys at it. And, uh, and uh, they were kind of wiping them out six at a time. And, and at the time, I was really working hard. I was juggling probably six different scripts three of them uh, shows that I was in and three other for class. Uh, I, I was working on my naturalism and my realism and my work, really kind of finding my groove. I was kind of, my instrument was sort of tuned. And that came across, I guess, in my reading. They had me read and uh, and Lincoln got called back too. So we got called back, both of us got called back while they're still going through these six at a time to get through the 500. And they dismissed Lincoln and uh, they asked me to read yet one more time and I did. And then they dismissed me. So I thought it was all over. And then while I was getting to my car in the parking lot, the assistant to the director came running out saying, hey, Jeffrey, he'd like to see you again. I'm like, okay. And I go back in, and, and this director's name was Martin Brest. Mar Marty Brest. And Wally, Wallace Nisita was the casting person. And uh, Brest took me aside and said, listen, the first time you read, it was really great. The second time, not so much. <laughs> so I said, right. you know, I'm... I'm I'm kind of hungover. I didn't expect to be here. I borrowed my friend Lincoln's electric razor, which did no good on my beard. <laughs> he said, read the first scene again for me. And I did. And he turned to the casting director and said, I want to test him. And it was, it was set. I was going to test for this film called The Genius. And uh, a few weeks later, I get a call from a, a L.A. agent who says, uh, the director, Martin Brest, told me about you, this young talent I, he discovered in San Francisco. And my friend is producing this film called The Right Stuff, and I need to come to the Bay Area. I'd like to introduce myself in case you don't have anyone representing you to negotiate your contract for this screen test because actors need to negotiate before they test so they don't have the studio over a barrel, you know, because once once you screen test and you have then kind of the power to ask for whatever money you want 
if they really want you for the role. Hmm. Things that Hollywood has learned over the years. So I was happy to meet this agent. She had just moved out to Hollywood and opened her own boutique agency. She was with William Morris in New York. And, uh, and I, you know, kind of was honored that she showed up at my doorstep with a bottle, nice bottle of wine and kind of wooed me. And she said, you know, if you get the part or not, I, I probably need you to move back to Los Angeles so I can represent you. I was like, wow. Mm. All right. We'll see about that. <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, the film went into turnaround. Warren Oates was attached to the film and he died. I think they were trying to get John Lennon in the film too. And, uh, the film, was also in the mix of when MGM and United Artists merged. The executives couldn't decide whether or not they wanted to go ahead with the film, and Martin Brest had been on this project developing it for about a year. And finally, it got back on track, and they changed the name from The Genius to War Games. And uh, I got my test done the same day that they tested uh, Eric Stoltz and Dana Carvey, Brian Backer, who had just won a Tony on Broadway, and uh, John, his name, John Stockwell, John Croft, uh, the guy from from Christine, he had starred in Christine. Uh, anyway, there were about six of us who tested with Ali Sheedy that day, and I remember during my test, Ali kept looking through me. I was like, "Why is she looking through me? Let me catch her eye." You know? uh, and and I look, what is she looking at? And there was Eric Stoltz in the in the corner of the studio, and. Flash forward about, oh gosh, I don't know, 25 years later, I run into Eric at a, a little Irish pub where his girlfriend from Friends at the time was singing in a band. And I said, Eric, can I ask you a question? Uh, you know, we both tested for war games back in 82. And uh, I just want to know, were you and Ali tight? Were you dating by chance? And he was like, Ali Sheedy, yeah. What, uh, what year? I said, 82. And he goes, yeah, we were living together. Like, Aha. <laughs> a clue. So she was kind of playing. She wasn't necessarily playing against me, but she wasn't necessarily connecting with me and more connecting with him. And uh, so needless to say, none of us got it. Of course, Matthew Broderick got it. But I had that agent, you know, insist that I move back to L.A., cut, cutting short, I guess, my master's study at ACT. Because I had screen tested for war games, all these doors opened up as the hot young talent in town. Because out of the uh, open calls they had in New York, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., and Chicago, I was the only one to get a screen test without an agent. Hmm. So it was, I, I felt pretty special. It was kind of cool. Um, but I, could, I couldn't, even with doors opening up and auditioning for a lot of big movies there that were casting in 82 and 83, uh, I didn't really click yet. Uh, I finally got cast in Twilight Zone movie, Marcy Learoff knew about me, I think we had had a general from months previous, and called me in to meet with George Miller. And first of all, I was shocked that, that Twilight Zone was going to continue, you know, three months after the accident on John Landis' set, where yeah. Vic Moore and the kids were killed. And I thought it was really, actually, in bad taste for Spielberg to finish that film. But apparently the accident happened on the last day of shooting, they could work around it, and they had all these other directors with their projects, Joe Dante and... Uh, Steven Spielberg to, to direct their segments and George Miller. And I went in and met George Miller. My audition though was to tell a joke. They hadn't quite fleshed out all the passengers dialogue. And so he asked me to come in with a joke. And so I, I called everyone I knew and tried to get their best jokes. 
<laughs> so uh, when uh, the joke time came, you know, I got along for, first famously with George. George, it was his first time in Hollywood directing a, a picture, and he was just taking all the starlets and activity going on on the Warner Brothers set, and he was mesmerized, as was I. And so we hit it off that way. And then when it came time for telling a joke, I said, uh, what part of the vegetable is an inedible? I don't know. The wheelchair. <laughs> and uh, George Miller, you know, he's an Aussie. They have very twisted senses of humor down there, and he loved it. Whereas looking over at Mike Fenton and... <laughs> Marcy Learoff, they were frowning and pissed off. Oh, un-PC, how could you tell such a bad joke? I said, wait, I got one for you that I got from my grandfather. He said, a young Jewish kid uh, comes home to his grandfather and says, look, granddaddy, today instead of riding the bus to school, I saved 50 cents and, and ran alongside it. And the grandfather pats him on the head and takes the 50 cents and says, why didn't you save 250 and run alongside a taxi? <laughs> <laughs> To which they they laughed, and so all was good. And the next, the following week, I was in wardrobe and and uh, working on the remake of Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet with John Lithgow. First of all, George Miller was a delightful director. He was one of those actor actors dream directors, like who would say if if during rehearsal you come up with any lines or business, try it out. Let's let's see how it goes. And, and I think I came up with six different bits or lines and, and he, I think wanted to keep them all. Three of them, I think got cut of the lines, but you still see me doing the business where my wife and I are fighting over the pillow and we're head to head crying and a uh, bit of a line here and there. I'm basically a glorified extra still in this one, but partly because my seat's right across from John Lithgow and they needed my seat a lot of the time for the camera. <laughs> so uh, I'd hang out in the back of the airplane with the extras. And there was a guy with a, a giant mohawk named Spaz. Spaz Attack was his name, <laughs> who was very keen on telling me about his fight scene with Harrison Ford in a little film called Blade Runner, which I was looking for when it came out. And it was it was cut. His fight with Harrison was cut, unfortunately, but he was a real character. And then Milton Burl's brother, Jack, Jack Burl. Yeah, I think it was Jack. Burrell. I think so. Um, he was telling me uh, all these wonderful stories. He said, you know, my brother got kidnapped by Al Capone. I was like, huh? And he goes, yeah, his uh, brother Milty had a gig in Chicago. And Capone calls him up and says, hey, I want you to play my club. And says, uh, Milton says, no, sir, I'm sorry. With all due respect, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Capone, I've got a contract with this other club. He goes, no, you'll play my club. Click. <laughs> and when Uncle Milty arrived in Chicago at the airport, at gunpoint, he's kidnapped and taken to Al Capone's club Holy and forced shit. to play. <laughs> I just love these stories that, you know, sometimes hanging with the extras, it pays off. During the night of the first night of shooting and the second night of shooting, my girlfriend at the time, her cat had had kittens. And I felt this terrible pain in my arm. I lifted up my arm in the middle of the night. And there was a little kitten hanging on my arm. <laughs> I was like, get off! Ooh. And I went back to sleep. The next day, I developed a, a swollen gland in my armpit. No, it was in my elbow. First, it was in my elbow. It was a, like a lump. And I think it was Jack Burrell who said, oh, that's a cyst. What do you do is you just rub that and it'll go away. You know, get it some circulation. So I rubbed it and it became two. <laughs> 
and then and then I got the gland in my armpit swelled up next, and the day after I had all these red lines going up my arm, and so I at lunch went to the Warner Brothers nurse who gave me an address and said get there now. It was to a local doctor, and she she said drop your drawers and gave me three shots three shots of penicillin in my ass <laughs> because she said. Those red lines going up your arm, that's blood poisoning. It was going to your heart. So I had basically cat scratch fever. <laughs> so for the next three more days on the on the uh, fuselage of the airplane, being rocked by the the Teamsters, by the, the crew and with the arcs, you know, I was in a daze. I was really kind of sick. Um, and I think because of that, ever since then, I've not been – great at flying i get claustrophobic i have uh help palpitations <laughs> anyway uh but i was you know i was i found working with john john lithgow just a sweetheart just a gentleman of it actually everyone on that set was wonderful abby lane and jd johnston the time i spent with donna dixon donna was just a sweetheart she had i think recently broken up with paul stanley of kiss and because she and i were about the same age i think she just like lobbed onto me we had all these wonderful conversations and she confided a lot of things in me and um but i think she met uh, dan Aykroyd at that rap party for twilight zone i remember riding the elevator at the rap party with scatman crothers and he had these cool ray-bans scatman where'd you get those cool glasses and he goes ah these well i was up in canada with my good friend jack nicholson who gave me these you know yeah scatman it was really fun uh jack mack and the heart attack were the the band at that party? I remember great party, rap parties. But well, I, I did a uh, a film not too long afterwards called Johnny Dangerously, where I mentioned I, I met Dom DeLuise on that. Then that was really fun working. Amy Heckerling directed directed it. She was very you know uh, I need more I need more New York accent. Give me more New York. I was like I love Johnny. I love Johnny. I love Johnny. You know it was like oh my God I got one line. <laughs> okay well. She says, oh, fine. You know, hell on. And at the time, I was trying to make a living, you know, doing a number of different things, valet parking, catering and such. And I couldn't afford – I wasn't really invited, I don't think, to the rap party at 20th Century Fox. Or I was invited, but I couldn't go. I needed to make money. Ironically, the company that I catered for catered that party. <laughs> so I remember going to Michael Keaton – and Amy Heckerling and giving them their drinks they'd ordered from me. And as I'm delivering their drinks, Michael turns to Amy and says, wasn't he in the film? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't realize there were a lot of musical numbers in, in Johnny Dangerously that were cut. Uh, Maureen Stapleton had a wonderful number and, and Joe Piscopo had a number. Everyone had a number or two and they were all cut and they were shown at the uh, rap party and, it was apparent why they were cut because everyone was off key or off <laughs> rhythm. It was just terrible. But I remember you know, the uh, day I was on set shooting, I was there super early, getting through makeup and stuff. And here comes Maureen Stapleton, who I knew as a legend, you know, from Broadway and such, in her house coat with her with her newspaper under her arm, heading you know straight for makeup. And she really never looked at me. She just made a beeline. But as she's passed, you know, my jaw drops. And I'm like, ah, following her. And and without missing a beat, not even looking at me, she says, it's impolite to look at an old woman first thing in the morning. <laughs> before, before Johnny Dangerously, I did a, a little bit in 82 
on a film called Crackers, which was a remake of an, a famous Italian comedy that Louis Maul directed. And I had a scene with Sean Penn. And because my agent, I guess, harped Michael Chenich, whatever the casting director's name was, he was apparently in the, in the mailroom at Universal and a real go-getter. Everyone uh, passed on casting this little comedy film and he begged uh, and got the opportunity to cast it. It was very smart. It was a little film called Animal House. So he went from the mailroom to casting Animal House to the head of comedy casting at Universal in Jeez. no time at all. Anyway, when I got into his office for the audition, he said, you should thank your, uh, your agent. She must have called me 28 times for this one little tiny part on page 19. Let me call Louie and see if he wants to meet you. And Louie Ball apparently was like in his office right down the hall. And he says, Louie, I got this kid here for this role on page 26, blah, blah, blah. You want to see him? Okay. He hangs up and goes, you got the role. I said, without meeting him? He goes, yeah. He says, if you're not right when you show up on the set, he'll use someone else. I said, but, but I'm here. Why do I keep tell if I'm right? Forget about it. Part of the reason I think they cast me is my agent said that I could cover my own way because it was shooting on location in San Francisco. I had come down from San Francisco. I had many friends that I could stay with up there. And so I go up and I'm supposed to shoot. First day I go and visit and meet Donald Sutherland, who, uh, because of my connection with Lincoln Meyerson and his dad, Alan Meyerson, uh, and Donald was in Steelyard Blues that Alan had directed and uh, was a big, there was a big connection there. I, I introduced myself to Donald and got along very nice with Donald, who's a, a sweetheart. And then uh, I had gone to high school with Sean Penn. So I, you know, hung out with Sean for a little bit and got him to drop his te terrible Texan accent for a while, which was nice. Um, anyways, when, when it finally came to my turn to shoot, it was raining. And they told me that they were putting off my scene because of the rain. So I hung out for better part of a week waiting for my scene to shoot. Uh, but because the weather kept changing and they couldn't really shoot my scene in the wet weather, they said, oh, go back to L.A., We'll shoot your scene down there. And at that time, it was Laszlo Kovacs as the cinematographer. And that was in November. So flash forward to January, I finally get a call from Universal. We're going to shoot your scene finally. I was like, God, I forgot about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I go to the, to the set, and they're making it rain. What the? F <laughs> so they're making it rain for my scene. And now, and Leslie Kovacs, I think, got sick. And so Sven Nenquist was our cinematographer for the pickup shots. And that was kind of cool to work with, almost working with two legends. Unfortunately, my scene is basically cut. I think you see me dancing while Sean's playing the harp in that scene. But And the film ultimately was not a success. But it was kind of cool being, at least having a, a film by Louis Maul, directed yeah. by Louis Maul on, on the resume. Loved Atlantic City. God, that was Burt Lancaster Great man. Anyway, so uh, doing little bits on TV shows too during that period, Dallas and uh, let's see, Max Headroom. Then in 84, 83, 84, I got cast as a guest star on a, a, an episode of a new show called Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and uh, and that was quite fun. Uh, I got I was this amateur filmmaker valet parker who who gets the the kidnappers later who kidnap me on, on on his camera so they come after me and kidnap me and uh one of the things that ties into my twilight zone episode uh claustrophobia 
is that we had to stuff Scotty, my character, into the trunk of a car. Mm-hmm. And every take, there was either an airplane, a train, or technical difficulties. Ended up like getting Oscar had to direct me getting into that trunk of the car, being stuffed in about fifteen times. Mm. Not for me. But that was one of those uh, where I had I had recently broken up with my girlfriend, who I bought a car with, and she took the car. So I borrowed my neighbor Buddha, who had been gifted an old rundown VW. That had one headlight, no brakes, no clutch, maybe one taillight, and drove it really at 5 a.m. from West Hollywood to uh, Pasadena to the location. Uh, I remember a crew member seeing me drive up in the thing, and he goes, "What are you? What? What the fuck are you driving there, kid?" And I said, uh, "It's the only way I could get here." And he goes, "Who are you?" I said, "I'm the guest star this week." He goes, "Why didn't you just call the studio? We wouldn't have driven you, picked you up." I said, "Good to know." So I think the rest of the, the week I had a ride. Um, <laughs> But then I went and hung out, you know, with with the extras who were there early until uh, the caterer opened up for breakfast. And finally, an AD came over and said, we're ready for you in in makeup and stuff. And all the extras that I was hanging with, they looked at me and said, why are you going to makeup? And I said, well, I'm the guest star. And they were like, what are you doing hanging out with us? I was like, why not? Come on. And I've seen over the years this real separation of like classes, stations between extras and principles and i just i don't dig it i've needed to be on a set a few years back and and worked as an extra on chris columbus's rent and the second ad who was in charge of the extras was like a sadist terrible they're they're uh i just don't don't like to see the way they're treated or the it's unfortunate a a lot of times extras seem to get treated like uh you know let's say also rams you know just oh you're just a prop no, they're people. Yeah, it's it's not good. I, I uh, like that gentleman Ray or Roy Wallach, who kind of took me under his wing uh, when I met him on the Young Frankenstein shoot. I went to visit the medical center with him. I went to Theatricum Botanicum, met Will Gear with him, uh, and he was a pro extra. And they were you were able to make a living as an extra. Uh, sometimes you keep your wardrobe in the back seat of your car because you could work on multiple shows in a day, and then. When SAG, the Screen Extras Guild, got absorbed by SAG, they lost a lot of their money-making potential. Uh, producers could use you on multiple shows without giving you a bump in pay. Um, a lot of kind of crappy things happened and made it very unfinancially wor- worthwhile. And, uh, and, and you were also re- relegated as a third-rate citizen, you know, cold lunches instead of a hot lunch, what have you. You know, I guess I came from my early career of being around extras and saw, you know, they're basically nice people and they should be treated with respect. Yeah. Extras lives matter. See, they're not set dressing. (laughs) I mean, they are, but (laughs) they have feelings too. One of the reasons that, you know, I got on sets as an extra is I wanted to be on a set to see what it was like. And I learned a lot, but ultimately for an actor, it's not fulfilling. You don't get the meat of character development lines and, business and so on and so forth so eventually uh i also started looping around this period in the early 80s uh lee french who was my friend lincoln's stepmom used me as young voice on a lot of uh films and tv shows she worked on as a uh, casting director artistic director for a group a loop group called custom looping so i did voices on films like heathers uh lover boy 
uh, a series called The Best Times, a TV movie called uh, Crimes of Innocence, you know, things like this. And what it is basically is I'm working with improv artists like Archie Hahn and and Nicholas Guest, Christopher Guest's brother, and Tracy Newman, Lorraine Newman's sister, and all these really great, great artists. And we're watching the mouths of the people who are not mic'd. Most films, you know, just mic the principals. Yeah. And if there are people walking through or people doing business or what have you, they need to have voices put in for them. So we're making up the words that you might see their mouths moving as they walk past camera or what have you. And uh, and it's really fun. When you're working with creative improv artists, It's that's a blast. Although I remember when I uh, came in to do my ADR, uh, automatic dialogue replacement, on Pale Rider, because there was a technical problem in the scene where Daddy gets shot, and I'm crying over his body. They Clint needed me to cry, <laughs> replace my crying. Uh, Lee, the direct, artistic director of this loop group, was also doing the cowboys and extras uh, words dialogue replacement. And when she saw me show up, she looked at me and said, I didn't call you in for this. I said, but I'm here to do my own lines. She goes, you're in this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> From what I read in a previous interview, your uh, trajectory on Pale Rider was kind of fun. You got bumped up because somebody else got bumped up. Yeah, it's once again that wonderful agent, Paula Cedar. Uh, she was a go-getter. She would call casting directors kind of regularly as part of her weekly discipline. And they got, I think she kind of put off a lot of casting directors, too, because they were so busy. They didn't really have time to always take her calls. But she called, I think it was Lauren Lloyd over at Warner Brothers or Marion Doherty, and and she said, um, you have anything casting that didn't come come out in Breakdowns? And Breakdowns is the service that uh, casting and directors and producers put out what roles they're casting so agents know how to submit their, their talent. And they said, well, we got this one thing that we're, we're going to cast from our own file, files. And she said, well, describe what it is. So, And and luckily, the description, I fit. She says, why don't you see Jeffrey Weissman for that? This was young, tin pan, cowboy, gold panner. And uh, what had happened was Chris Penn, Sean's very talented younger brother, met Clint at a party in Malibu or somewhere and, and, and said, hey, Clint, I want to work with you. And Clint sent him the script for Pale Rider offering him the role of Eddie Conway. And uh, Chris kind of threw it back. Said, I don't want to play a good guy. Give me something meaty like a bad guy or something. So Clint moved Chris over into La Hood's son, the part, the, the bad guy who uh, attempts rape on Sidney Penny's character until he's shot in the hand by Clint's character. And uh, and that then the actor playing Teddy Conway, Spider's young, uh, son, one of his two boys, moved into Eddie. And that left Teddy open. So I went in to audition for Teddy Conway, and I knew with the scene that I had for the audition, I was going to have to cry on cue. And I'd studied various different techniques of acting by now. I'd studied a subjective personalization technique where you do a mental image uh, in place of the character from your own history, you know, sort of a method. Uh, emotional recall. I had a lock of my, my grandmother's hair in my pocket. My grandmother was really the only one in my family who encouraged me to keep pursuing my acting because my, that's where my heart was. Um, and I adored her. Uh, and also I was doing a little bit of uh, 
the Meisner fantasy charging stuff. So, so I, I didn't want to leave anything to chance. And when Fritz Mans, the uh, producer, put me on tape to send to Clint, uh, I had no trouble with the, the material. It was kind of in the material already. Um, uh, so I kept, and I was doing Eddie's lines. I, I, I cried on cue and had no problem. And sure enough, uh, by Monday, I was on an airplane, a little tiny airplane with my claustrophobia, <laughs> with, with some of the bad guys laughing at me with my white knuckles. Uh, <clears throat> On the way to uh, catch him some Valley, Idaho, to, to shoot for four weeks with Clint. So that yeah, it was uh, so much fun playing cowboy. Those sets were remarkable, both the camp and then the practical built new town on the top of a mountain. I think it was Bruce Surtees, the cinematographer, who probably talked Clint into building this town up there because wherever Bruce would set his camera, he had the White Cloud Mountains or the Salmon River Mountains or the Sawtooth Mountains in the background as this just breathtaking. If you look, ever get the chance to see uh, Pale Rider on a big screen, it's it's really breathtaking. It's gorgeous. Uh, and then working with Clint, there was really adventure after adventure. I, I Because of the, the guy that I, my neighbor who I was good friends with, who loaned me his beat up, beat up VW Beetle on uh, the Scarecrow and Mrs. King guest star, uh, he was friends with Kerry Snodgrass. Uh, uh, through his uh, other dear friend, uh, Cynthia McAdams, famous photographer downstairs. And so Carrie was on this film. And I became, I bonded very quickly with Carrie Snodgrass, who was a very fantastically strong, wonderful, independent mind actress. And she kept butting heads with Clint and Michael <laughs> Moriarty over how her she wanted her character to be. And I would calm her down. I said, you know, buy a picture of strawberry margaritas after the shoot and have another one, talk it out, talk it out. Because she almost quit the film a few times. <laughs> Jeez. But luckily, Carrie, you know, got herself distracted in good ways. And uh, Michael Moriarty quit the film at one point. Right after you see my character repeat what brother Eddie has just done up the road. Aren't you going to town, Mr. Barrett? Isn't that kind of dumb? After what happened last time, you know, it's a it was nice comedy. It was really great to be in an audience to hear the laughter that it it uh, inspired. Hull Barrett, Michael Moriarty's character, goes into town and he gets beat up by the by the locals, the local bullies. And during the rehearsal of the fight choreography, one of those guys didn't hold his punch or follow the choreography, and Michael ended up breaking three fingers. Oh, and he quit the film because Michael was. Uh, a, a composer, and he was actually commissioned to compose a symphony. And now he had broken fingers; he's going to have to figure out how to do it. So it took Clint a couple of days to help him figure out. He got Clint got him one of those keyboards that you blow through. Uh, anyway, got Michael back on the set, and he can compose in his dressing room in between t- takes. And we continue shooting. But if you look closely at the film, when Hull Barrett, Michael's character, is coming back from town, where that was kind of dumb. <laughs> Uh, after the fight, he's got his cast on these three fingers, and he doesn't hide it. <laughs> well, as he's driving the buckboard, something to look for. Hell yeah! Another thing to look for in that when when uh, Spider, when Doug McGrath, by the way, Spider was originally going to be uh, Rip Torn. Rip Torn. I don't know if he had a conflict or just couldn't do it, make it work for him. So Doug McGrath, who worked with Clint on Honky Tonk Man, who I uh, who was also in. Uh, the Vic Morrow episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, Doug McGrath took the part of Spider, 
wonderful Canadian actor, beautiful, beautiful spirit. When we're shooting Spider's death, uh, death scene where he's the bad guys make him dance, you know, he's drunk with the big rock of gold, and he when the they shoot the rock of gold out of his hand, he goes for his weapon, and then they shoot him from head to toe or toe to head. Um, it took us three days to shoot that one scene. Jeez. First, because uh, every time Doug got shot, you know, and they'd shoot different sections of his body and all these back and forths. Uh, the first day, there was snow on the ground. The second day, all the snow had melted. So they had to come in with the oil-based snow. Uh, oh, and the first day, I was, let's see. First day, there was snow on the ground. The second day, we were in a blizzard. <laughs> so if you'll check the edit, brother and I, Teddy and, and Eddie, who have been in the mercantile eating candy and all, uh, when the shooting starts, we go out on the, the porch of the mercantile, and we're in a blizzard. When it cuts back to Spider, he's in sunlight. Uh, fast the cuts blizzard. are very quick. <laughs> yeah, so, so you've you've got to you got to have, have a keen eye, and you'll you'll catch it. And then by the time Daddy's finally dead, and the brothers get to run over to it and cry over his body, all the snow had melted, and so they brought in all the oil-based snow, fake snow. And I almost slipped when I got to Daddy's body. Chuck had got Chuck had hit my mark. We had uh, blocked it for our positions and Chuck went to my mark so I went to Chuck's mark which was at daddy's head and I slipped on the oil based snow almost kicking poor Doug in the head I saw his hair go move from my boot and I was like <laughs> anyway I kept the action going and, and was crying over his body and, and Clint likes to shoot the rehearsals so we were shooting a rehearsal and when it was done because it was kind of behind schedule too long in the scene he said alright let's move on and I was like no, and I got right into Clint's face. I said, Clint, Chuck didn't hit his mark. I had to take his, and, and I almost kicked Doug in the head, and it's all. And he says, no, it looked good. We'll just cut from your face, which told me I had the close-up. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, I can't argue with that. <laughs> leave it alone, leave it alone. I remember uh, that, that because we were so exposed to the elements up there, they built the, this town on, on the top of a mountain in, a, in that national forest up there, uh, we constantly had wind going right through us. And with the wind chill factor, it was almost always about minus 10. So it was it was a very, very cold shoot. I remember uh, that's the AD would come to the actors. We're all around the heat cannon. They have these big heat cannons that we could stay warm around. And, and it was like, we need you on set. It was like, no, 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 we can't. No, no, we don't want to leave. I can't move. <laughs> that was, uh, I had brought my ex-wife up during shooting and I remember the day before she came in Clint had fired the caterer and the new caterer the next day is on the top of this mountain with their wagon and for lunch it was my ex-wife Clint and I having lunch together and it was steak and lobster I was like in the middle of a blizzard it was snowing I said nice weather Clint he goes yeah I didn't expect it to be snowing in October and he was he was so upset but uh, yeah he broke a, his horse had stepped into a gopher hole or something oh. through the snow and, and he fell off. Clint never falls off his horse, but he fell off and he cracked some ribs. So he was in pain a good deal of the time. And he was not only starring in the damn thing, but he was directing it. So he had learned from George Siegel, who directed him in a Dirty Harry movie or two, who had learned from John Ford, famous West early Western director, to shoot the, the rehearsals because actors are less self-conscious during rehearsals. 
as soon as they hear action, you know, the shoulders go up, they become self-conscious, and they, and they lose their naturalism. So he's very smart, and it also saves time and money. Say so it definitely cuts down on reshoots if you have something that you can work on, work with. Yeah, and it may look or feel like it's not polished like Hollywood likes, but but it, there's more of a naturalism. And uh, and Clint never said action. He always said when when you're ready or any time. Go when you want. <laughs> yeah, just like at any time, which was really it took a lot of the kind of embedded. Uh, tension from action. Oh, I'm on. You know, it took me about 20 years to learn how to act for film. You know, it's it's camera can't lie, so everything really has to be truthful, mm-hmm. and to make yourself really get into the truth of the character and the circumstances and the lines and everything is uh, doesn't come overnight. You really have to be probably introverted uh, to work at best. So uh, if you watch Clint's work, he, he puts it all out at the end of his nose. So you, you have to find that point to focus it all. Yeah. He he uh, had this long monologue. It took us all night to shoot this monologue around the campfire. And I don't want to say I was going to sleep, but he, it was so small that I didn't have, you know, a lot of entertainment going on. I was like, huh? Because he was putting it all right there at the end of his nose, which when it's up on the 70-foot screen, it's full. I've been very fortunate to be able to see actors from different angles make it work. John Lithgow, as you know, is weaned on Broadway and stage, and he's big. He's a big man. And luckily, George Miller on that one wanted more, more, more. He kept saying, give me more, give me more. And for John, that was like a big relief. Oh, yeah. And and yet he's so connected to his core truth, he wouldn't do it unless it was genuine. And he's such a great disciplined actor. So... So it was great to see the difference between John's work, Clint's work, and then working with Michael J. Fox, where Michael honed his talent on his sitcoms and has a formulaic delivery, but it's still connected to a truthful thing. I remember on Back to the Future 2, watching Michael on this one scene in particular, he actually called cut. If you're an actor directing it, you can call cut, but you're not. an actor never calls cut. But Michael called cut. I said, no, no, cut, cut, cut. I didn't even believe that myself. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Zemeckis didn't argue with that. He said, yeah, yeah, okay, let's do it again. It's crazy. In regards to your improv, you came out of probably one of the most famous improv. Um, I started doing improv, uh, of course, at the streets of the Renaissance Fairs and, and the Charles Dickens Christmas Fairs, and then improv with little groups, uh, 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 sort of a hack group called LA Connection that would steal my work from our improv rehearsals and then put them in their performance. I was like, that's not improv, you're stealing my stuff. So I started working with uh, my friends that I went to university with who moved from uh, San Francisco to LA. And I worked with uh, this group we called ourselves the Comedy Omelette. (laughs) We had Julia Sweeney at one point. We had uh, lots of really great comedians, uh, uh, over a hundred different uh, improv actors worked out with us over the years. And then the uh, comedy omelet, uh, when it disbanded, I sort of took over the artistic uh, directorship of it and became the flying penguins. And then the flying penguins were absorbed into the first, as the first varsity players of Los Angeles theater sports and theater sports is what eventually whose line is it anyway, was based on. 
in LA theater sports, we had members like Brad Sherwood, Wayne Brady, Greg Proops, Michael McShane. Um, so I was working with these really, and who I mentioned to you earlier, Ellen Idelson, who uh, created Boy Meets World, and Dan O'Connor, the artistic director, is, is now married to Edie Patterson, who's doing phenomenal work in every show she's in on television and film. Um, and because I was neighbors and friends with Beans Morocco, who was out of Second City in the committee, Beans was in the committee, um, he would get invited by Jeff Machowski and, and uh, Jane Norris, who were directors of Second, uh, Second City West, the I.O. West, in L.A., and they started doing shows at the uh, the on the pier, the old uh, Ashgrove when the Ashgrove reopened. And so I went with my friend Beans Morocco because he was uh, invited to to play in a jam. And so I got to the jam, and and there was Dan Castellaneta and and Paul Dooley and Wayne Brady and you know people that I had known and all these legends. And I was like, this is fantastic. And I even though. I don't think I was at their caliber. I was invited to play. I was in the jam. And uh, being on stage with Dan Castellaneta was just a dream because he's such a genius. And I and I kind of threw myself because I looked down during the performance, and there at the front table next to the stage was Elaine May. And I almost shit my pants on stage because there was <laughs> Elaine May, who I, I grew up loving examining doctors, and, you know, she and Mike Nichols records. Uh, it was, it was really a treat, but I, I couldn't really hold a candle. I, I think my improv work has grown incredibly in the example last year. I, I haven't been doing a lot of improv consistently. Um, been artistic director of a few groups up here in Northern California. Um, but last year, my friend Marcus, who I did a, a film with called, uh, nobody's laughing. You can find online. He's, he's brilliant. Marcus invited me to do a two person improv show. And I was so nervous because it's been a while since I was on stage, and I went and did it, and and it was a riot. It, it really w went well. We just kept rocking it. And whenever one of us felt a shift, we went into a new scene, and and uh, we got standing ovation. It was it was quite fun. I love love doing improv. It's and I've been teaching it. I was teaching it at Sonoma State and elsewhere. Um, it's a great effect. To having having a lot of success with my my students. Well, as, as the more of these interviews I do, I I'm finding more and more actors that have the uh, like improv background and really kind of build off of that uh, background for their craft. It's like it's very helpful. Yeah, you know, a lot of films scripts. The writers have been paid hundreds of thousands, if not more. And they've worked many years on that script to get that dialogue or that line just so. But sometimes a director is open up to you bringing something fresh in or paraphrasing or making it even stronger with your own words. Not always, but sometimes. One film I did called Corked, the directors, there were two directors, uh, were open to me. I would come in every day with something new to add to the scene. Not, not every day, but often. Uh, my wife was in the wine industry, and I was playing a, an obsessive-compulsive winemaker. And I would ask her to coach me on what things meant, and then I would use life experiences for other elements of the scenes. And I'd say 95% of the time when I came in with something to add to the scene we were shooting that day, they said yes, and about 30% of my, my role in that film is me adding or improvising stuff. And it, and it worked. Uh, 
Also, I've used improv on auditions. One commercial I did with Victoria Jackson for Mitsubishi Trucks, uh, I went in, uh, I think it was Dick James, said, this is the setup. The girls are sunbathing next to a river. You're, you and your buddy are driving your trucks down the river. And you say to the girls sunbathing, soak it up, girls. And then later on, you're by the side of the river, and the girls drive by in their truck and say, soak it up, guys, as they splash you with their truck. And so on action, the girls are going to be splashing you. And I'm in the, in the room with two jocks. It's me, the nerdiest thin guy, and two jocks. All right, action. Here come the girls. They're going to splash you. Soak it up, guys. And all three of us go down and are, like, wet. And, and I, I, I'm thinking to myself instantly, I can't do the same as these guys. If my connection is to the girls, i got to keep my connection to the girls. So I start waving to the girls, and I, and I tell the guys, I think they like us. And I didn't get a call back, but I got cast directly from the initial audition, and they ended up using that tagline, I think they like us, in the commercial. Nice. So it came out of improvising and just being connected. The, the key is, if this is true, then this must be true. You keep these connections, yes and, and don't deny, and don't block, and don't waffle. Just get straight to it. All these basic improv rules. The uh, Upright Citizens Brigade have the Comedy Improvisation Manual, which I think is a fantastic. It takes everything that you learn from Del Close, from uh, uh, Truth in Comedy, and, and Charna Halpern's Art by Committee, and Keith Johnstone's Theater Sports uh, Impro book, and, and really takes it to another level on, on really basic and advanced training all in one book that you can get from the Upright Citizens Brigade. Nice. How did you end up with the Marx Brothers group? In uh, 1987, 1987 um, my, that really great agent uh, closed her shop. At least I wasn't with her anymore. She, I think, just went to managing a few select clients. And I was not working a lot in, in film and TV, maybe a couple commercials here and there. And I had a friend who played Stan Laurel, who had a lookalike agency. And he called me up one day and asked if I'd ever consider playing Stanley. And I, I figured he needed a backup for a gig. I said, no, but I, I need some work. What do you got? And, and he said, uh, my Oliver Hardy partner who works at Universal lost his other Stan Laurel partner and needs a replacement like quick i said let me go for it and i went and auditioned i didn't remember that much about laurel hardy i'd seen a few films growing up but i knew i i could do it and i had it all wrong but ironically the actor who played who was playing oliver hardy knew me from a production of romeo and juliet i had done a year before in hollywood where i played mercutio and he turned to the boss who was kind of shaking his head at my my interpretation of stan laurel and he turned to the boss and said, I know this guy. He's got talent. I'll train him. And the boss said, okay. <laughs> and so I got hired at Universal on the studio tour playing Stan Laurel. You know, they bought the rights from Larry Harmon, from Bozo, who owned the rights at that time, to Laurel and Hardy, uh, to have the characters in the park entertaining. And they had Charlie Chaplin, they had Groucho Marx, and W.C. Fields, and Mae West. And eventually Marilyn Monroe, and then added Lucy and other characters over the years. So within two weeks, I was doing a passable Stan Laurel. And I remember about two weeks in, this uh, guest, this old black woman, came up pointing to us and said, I always wanted to meet you two before I died. And I was like, what did I get myself into? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But it, it opened a lot of doors for me. I became friends with Tony Haas and, and Lois Laurel, Stanley's daughter. 
and Tony was the Grand Poobah married to her of the Sons of the Desert, the Laurel and Hardy official international fan club. And it opened many doors. I got to meet Hal Roach and, and many of the surviving cast members of various Laurel and Hardy and our gang movies that wow. Hal Roach produced and uh, became friends with Eleanor Keaton, Buster's widow, and, and Jack Oakey's widow, and, and uh, Anita Garvin, the famous wonderful comedian from silent films and talkies who co-starred with uh, Thelma Todd in the series who trying to make the female version of Laurel and Hardy. They're really incredible moments that it opened me to that I just kind of fell into. I'm so happy I did. So a year after playing Stan Laurel, uh, the guy, the little Tunisian fellow, Samir, who was playing uh, Charlie Chaplin up there, kind of a political hire, who really wasn't doing service to Charlie Chaplin. He was wearing shorts and no makeup and and uh, not 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 great Chaplin. I put together with the help of my aficionado uh, silent film expert Beavis, who played Ollie, uh, the bright kind of Keystone Charlie Chaplin outfit, and started playing Charlie. Well, on Samir's days off, and then Samir pulled up to his game and bettered his Charlie, and then a year later. Uh, the uh, role of Groucho came came open, uh, and so I put Groucho together uh, because the guy who was playing Groucho didn't look anything like him. Uh, so I, I started playing Groucho then and put a Marx Brothers team together and uh, doing gigs, you know, these look-alike Hollywood tribute shows, uh, other theme parks and, and different shows on stage, uh, even in films. I played Groucho in a terrible movie with Leslie Nielsen called uh, 2001 A Space Travesty. And another terrible film called <laughs> Everything's George, which later became Angels with Angles. It was Rodney Dangerfield's last film and uh, Frank Gorshin's last film. Yeah. And at the, in the Gates of Heaven, I'm there with the Marx Brothers team uh, with Rodney Dangerfield as God. <laughs> Scary oh, thought. Boy, what a schlock piece that was. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the uh, role that should have been fun, but ends up getting you know marred with controversy for like the rest of your career. It's it's odd, you know. The lookalike agent that I mentioned who played Stan Laurel called me one day in my break room up at Universal and said, uh, you, "You know an actor named Crispin Glover?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I did a film with him at AFI with uh, Dan O'Hurley." In 83, or, uh, the year before he got the first Back to the Future movie. I know who he is. Why? He says, well, I've got this company looking for a, a, a photo double stand-in for him. And I was like, well, uh, Crispin's taller than me, and I don't look like him. I don't know. Well, but let, I need the work. <laughs> Get me in there. <laughs> I said, is this for the Back to the Future sequel, which was rumored to be going on? Uh, and he said, I'm not at liberty to say. I was like, Okay. So he set me up with a meeting with the assistant directors. And I, you know, said, you know, I've worked on Pale Rider. I worked on X, Y, and Z. I, I know what it's like to be on a set. I could use the work. My wife at the time was was having our second kid, you know, was pregnant with our second kid. I need my health insurance. And so then they sent me to casting. And then I started going to uh, makeup prosthetic fittings and body cast fittings. I was like, wow, this is going interesting. I figured. They needed George in multiple places at the same time because I heard that's what they were going to need to do with Michael. It was actually, I did a screen test for Bob Zemeckis, Bob Z, and uh, Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, in the young George makeup. 
page 17, you know, the Enchantment Under the Sea, yeah. George. And I remember Dick Tracy was shooting, Morton Beatty's Dick Tracy was shooting in the studio next door. And I, I came face to face with uh, William Forsythe's flat top. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think it was Dustin Hoffman as prune face. There was another actor or two there in these incredible prosthetic makeups. And here I'm made up as young Crispin. And they're looking at me going, who are you supposed to be? And I'm like looking at them going, what the hell is this? This is incredible. <laughs> anyway, so during my screen test, Zemeckis is talking with Dean and Dean Cundy says, hey, hey, Bob, I think we have Crispin without all the trouble. And I was like, what? What did I just hear? And Bob Z says, yeah, I, I think so. And little, you know, I tell my agents, I think I'm going to be playing the role. It's but my, 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 Even my makeup man says that Crispin's out. So in my mind, Crispin had another film commitment or something he couldn't get out of, which I couldn't fathom. First of all, he he rocked George McFly in the first film. Yeah. It was amazing. And uh, I couldn't fathom them doing a sequel without him, but they couldn't work out a contract. And then, of course, you know, when I showed up on set in the young George makeup of the Enchantment Under the Sea dance recreation, uh, Michael looked, took one look at me and said, oh, man, Crispin ain't going to like this. And I was like, oh, boy, that's a nice welcome. <laughs> and, and Zemeckis kept referring to me as Crispin, and Lorraine kept referring to me as Crispin. Or, you know, it was it was weird. Um, but by the end of the week, you know, everyone was accepting the fact that he wasn't there and it was me. I still was in the dark as why he wasn't doing the film. Or they never told me they had, hadn't got his rights to make me up to look like him. Oh, damn. So it was pretty uncomfortable. Next, uh, you know, I was shooting the 2015 stuff in the old age makeup hanging upside down, which a crew member told me was meant as torture for Crispin. I started getting <laughs> stories from Bob Gale on how Crispin would disappear during shooting, how Crispin insists on uh, not letting anyone cut his hair or throwing tantrums or... Uh, Zemeckis said that Crispin and Leah had painted a painting together in rehearsal, and Crispin showed up on set with it, insisting that it go in the McFly household, and, and Zemeckis not letting him put it up, and Crispin blowing his top. So it was, it was, it was dubious, and then what I learned after as getting up towards the release of the film, that I wasn't invited to various things, and that I had the plug mysteriously pulled on various events where I was going to be promoting the film and Universal Florida, which was pending opening, um, it became very clear that they were trying to keep me out of the public's eye. And uh, it was a very weird thing. When part three came out, Crispin called me and said, I, you know, I don't think it was fair what they did to me or you. I was like, yeah, what? why didn't you do the films? And he goes, and it, and it was basically because they offered him very little money, much less than they offered anyone else, he said, and that they uh, minimized his participation. Then they used footage from the first film mixed in with my, my footage uh, without offering him anything but more than maybe scale times three or something for those days. And I, you know, he told me his sad stories about Bob Gale making him cry in front of extras and humiliating him and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so everybody had a miserable experience. Yeah. So he sued. 
during this during the case, it came out that he and I had spoken, and I then later found out that I had been blacklisted. Oh, jeez. Uh, my boss, you know, up at the studio tour, came up to me and said, uh, Angela Lansbury wants Laurel and Hardy on Murder, She Wrote episode because she worked with them when she was little on stage. And uh, they won a Laurel Hardy team from the tour, but not Jeffrey Weissman. I was like, oh, fuck, I've been blacklisted. And uh, a couple other things started rearing their heads. Uh, things I wasn't invited to the premiere of Part 3, uh, blah, blah. You know, it was, it was really kind of icky. Um, and over the years, it, uh, it kind of faded, and I got discovered by the DeLorean owners. Started having me to their conventions and stuff. For probably six years or so, I was a, a special guest at theirs, and then Bob Gale started coming, and and Bob, I think, kind of nudged me out and has started asking me for people not to hire me to be at these reunions and stuff because I talk openly about it. You know, it's obvious that I, I've been gaslit in books by Bob <laughs> and gaslit in, in uh, interviews and and been blacklisted from events. So it's. It's very painful and very spiteful and, and petty. And I and I hate it that Crispin now has come out against my acting. In recent years, he's developed the whole, spun the whole thing. I don't agree with the story ending. It's like, no, Crispin, you didn't do it because you didn't get the money you want. He wanted a million bucks. Um, and they offered him probably 100000 instead. So, and then with the court settlement he got 765,000 something like that because I knew the guy who signed the check (laughs) I was doing theater sports with him at the time (laughs) anyway so uh, now Crispin's saying and I don't I don't appreciate the guy the actor he never calls me by name uh, the actor who plays George he did a terrible job and I'm like well yeah I was thrown into something that they didn't expect that they needed another and I wasn't included in rehearsals or anyway it was not a great thing but i have to tell you the good thing that has come out of it is the the really uh uber fans the fans that love those series those films with all their heart uh they've adopted me and cherished me and uh it's kind of not convoluted but hard for them because they they love bob gale they love crispin and they love me and yet they hear all the crap and I keep promoting that Bob Gale will get over it, Crispin get over it, let's come together and do something for Michael's charity. If you had, after the pandemic, a reunion that included us all, handing each other a laurel branch, you know, that would be really a fantastic thing that people would pay big money to, and that money could go to the Fox Foundation. Yeah. I mean, this has become a pretty, not popular, but famous feud at this point. It's... It's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous and petty, I think. Uh, the film now has almost garnered a billion dollars. Jeez. And, you know, I didn't get paid very much. Crispin got a nice chunk from, you know, his residuals and, and his settlement. Bob Gale, of course, is sitting pretty. And why keep up a battle? You know, your, your egos are showing to you guys proving to be petty and shallow. Yeah, it's, I mean. It's heartbreaking. You know, money was made, mistakes were made. Move on. Yeah, I, I, I really, uh, when when talking about it, looking back, I, I really regret not being strong at the moment and 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 saying, does do we have the rights to do this makeup? Well, that's not really something you think about 
you know, at you know, in the moment though, I mean, it's well, you know, it, I I did actually think about it. I couldn't voice it. I was needing the work. I needed to get my health insurance, and I worked for Universal Studios, who had the rights to Laurel and Hardy, who had the rights to Charlie Chaplin, or had the rights to Groucho Marx. Why didn't they have the rights to Chris McGlover? It was and and during the shoot, you know, Spielberg came up to me. Well, I'm in the body cast to do the spin thing that was cut for the pizza scene. And he says, so Crispin, I see you got your million dollars after all. You know, at that point, I realized I was saving him 900000 plus, And I in, in, involuntarily tried to kick Spielberg. The body cast kept my leg from kicking him. <laughs> <laughs> God. It's quite, it was uh, quite a scene. And it, and it was, and it's icky. It doesn't shine a good light at the, on them so I, naturally you know they'll they'll never want me around if if this hopefully there'll be a healing i would love to see it all kind of heal them come to god and come to truth rather and uh and face it be men but they i say just own the mistakes that were made and yeah, I, I think they're, move they're the hell avoiding on. it and keeping distance and letting it letting it ride out which is not not very ethical well they, I don't think they were very ethical. I don't think Crispin was very smart in because he really had a lot of power to negotiate some good stuff. He was supposed to play Seamus in part three, and he would have just kept snowballing his career had he done it, had he settled for the 100000 But apparently he wanted a million dollars and script approval. And Zemeckis and Bob Gallo weren't going to give him that kind of power. So there was, you know, there was no detente and cornered themselves into having to use him if they figured out another angle you know they used elizabeth shoe without changing her face to make her look like claudia a lot of people argue that why didn't they just let me play it with my face which would have been like you know dick Sargent taking over for dick york or vice versa let's say just a standard recast instead of you playing crispin playing george yeah, Richard Richard Harris being replaced in Harry Potter as Dumbledore. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, recasts happen, but you were in a very weird recast because, in essence, you were playing two characters. You know, you had to play Crispin Glover playing George McFly. Right. Yeah, they gave me they gave me all his screen tests. You know, with. Uh, Makeup tests and costume tests with Michael and Leah, uh, or rather, not with Michael, with with Leah and and Tom, and the, and that was uh, basically them having me instructing me to do an imitation for the uh, the recreating Biff's fight in the parking lot, George and Biff's fight, and kissing Lorraine on the dance floor and all. Then for the future stuff, I really wasn't included in any offset rehearsals. We had basically quick run-throughs to create some business. And I, I, would, I was able to create a few things. And, you know, the fruit please scene, uh, Lorraine has Marlene give George hanging upside down a banana. And I came up with a big banana slapping me in the face, which was very funny. Zemeckis laughed, and but that was cut out. Have you ever tried to eat a banana upside down? No. Uh, and then uh, the rotation for the, the uh, pizza which didn't match with the, the way they served the pizza. Um, 
I had a few other little bits uh, coming in from the, the front door. How's Granddad's little pumpkin came from Marlene's hot pants. They put Michael Marlene in these orange hot pants and stuffed his butt a little that made him look like he had a pumpkin. But that's where the line came from, since I was eye level with the pumpkin butt. Makes sense. Yeah. I had other lines in there that were cut. But uh, I didn't really have a lot of meat to deal with. And, and also hanging upside down, one week during that shoot was 19 hours. One was 21 hours. One was a 26-hour long day. Most of that time hanging upside down. See, it, it sounds like you were the uh, show pony, where they just kind of kept you in the uh, stables until they needed you, bring you out, make you do the dance, and all right, back you go. Kind of. Kind of. But I don't regret being a part of that trilogy. It was such a wonderful story. The, the trilogy holds up. It's one of the top ten of all time still. And, uh, and it was kind of, for the continuation and the, and the and telling of the story, it was nice being some glue, some important element there, and, uh, and to be cherished by the fans. That's the payoff for me. The Back to the Future trilogy is such a huge part of not even just American pop culture, but worldwide pop culture. Yeah. And I, and I did my job that uh, I'd say a good 30% of the people that I meet out there still don't realize it's a different actor. Say, I didn't know the story until 10 years ago. That's when I first heard it. So, yeah, I mean, I was at that time 24. So, for 24 years, no clue that you weren't Crispin. So, yeah, yeah it worked. I, 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 <laughs> and, they, and, the, and the Crispin fans, there are some, you know, very intense, diehard Crispin fans who, who hate me. I mean, absolutely. I'm like, um, what I was trying to do is honor him, basically. I, I could have, if it wasn't me, it was going to be another actor, but at least, you know, realize that I was friends enough with Crispin after doing the film at AFI that he gave me his phone number. We stayed in touch and that he called me and I helped him get his three quarters of a million dollars. But still, they still, they, they, they went blood. <laughs> Yeah, somebody was going to get that role. You you became the uh, proverbial scapegoat for Universal, for the Crispin fans, and I get no escape. The sacrificial lamb would sacrificial I guess sacrificial lamb. I was used as a pawn by both sides. So yeah, it's kind of shitty. And Ugh. you know, like we said, it sucks because it should have been a wonderful experience all around, and instead you get kind of. Held off in a corner until it's like, okay, go, go, go do your scene and then shh, get back here. You know, and it's just, that's just dirty pool. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really have a, a strong agent at the time who went in protect, to protect me. I, in fact, negotiated my title card. I have a shared title card. I get the sixth billing at the beginning of part two. And originally my contract was a producer's in credit at their discretion. I was like, wait a minute. I had a shared title card. On Pale Rider, on Twilight Zone, I have a co-star building. You know, I I I told Zemeckis it's going to be a step backward for me. Yeah. So you have anything less? And and he said, well, I won't give you a solo. I'll give you a shared title card. So thank God Zemeckis was honorable and keeping his word because as soon as he told Neil Catton and Bob Gale, they came over at me, blowing their tops, saying, "What are you doing talking to the director about your credit?" I said, "Well, it's step backward for me." Then they said, "You should never talk to the director." Anyways, like you guys, 
I'm sorry. I'm human. He's human. We're going to talk. Hollywood. I had to get out of L.A. partly because of the icky stuff from the blacklisting. And then traffic was pretty much 24 hours. And I was becoming a a monster behind the wheel. So it was time to get out and support my wife in the wine trade up in the wine country. And for a a good while, I was like a, a bigger fish in a small pond getting nice meaty roles that the role with corked uh several other films that i've done uh savior of none uh nobody's laughing is short um a lot of a lot of those credits are are nice meaty roles as an actor i need them and luckily i've learned how to act <laughs> and and have a lot of great stuff and and even though they're low or no budget i have a lot of really good stuff and a lot of respect from the filmmaking community here in Northern California, Sacramento, San Francisco, even up in, into Oregon and elsewhere. So I'm still working from time to time. Hopefully this pandemic will be over soon. And I, I can go back to a safe set and keep working. God, I hope. And I've been doing a lot of stage. I, I, uh, I got to play, I do my tribute to Marty Feldman. I played Igor in the musical version of, of Young Frankenstein up here. And the production was magnificent. I, I kid you not, the show across the boards that from the lead of Dr. Frankenstein by uh, Tim Tim Setzer and, and Allison Ray Baker, the Mary Gannam Grant, uh, all the all the lead actors to the whole chorus were fantastic, worked their butts off. We had these projected s- sets that worked magnificently. It was a really great production there at uh, the Spreckles Theater. And then I did uh, 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 the Robin Williams role in a stage version of the Fisher King at the Magic Theater in San Francisco as a fundraiser for the homeless. And and that came out beautifully. Uh, recently did a, a political drama called The Cat's Paw, in which I played a EPA official, low-level bureaucrat from the EPA. When the show opens, I'm in my, my character's in the 35th day of captivity being kidnapped by a, a environmentalist terrorist. And... I had some breakdown scenes where I had to cry in theater in the round where we're this close to each other. And I'm having some real tears and it, it worked very well. Almost every performance. Yeah. Every performance. Jeez. Um, so it's really great to, you know, keep strutting my stuff and doing my craft. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully get some recognition for, for more than just the uh, fill in for, for Crispin and back to the future. Well, yeah, it, uh, I was, I was really excited to see the uh, Igor credit. And then when you were talking about your uh, story starting out, you, you, you managed to go full circle. You went from, you know, meeting the professional ec- uh, extra on young uh, Frankenstein to then being in the musical version of young Frankenstein. I mean, yeah, it's a hell of a circle. It felt really good. It was it was pretty cool. I even tried to invite Mel to come up and see it, but my director Gene he didn't want me to have Mel there. I, I don't want him there. I, I was like, Gene, you've done a brilliant job. He would probably love you and kiss you. I say, from what I've seen, <laughs> Mel has loved every version of that that's been put on, and I've seen some pretty cringy ones. And Mel's like, oh, I love it. You know, just you know, just go with it. And it's like because it's a residual. It's a royalty. Movie. It's a, I get paid. <laughs> do what you want. <laughs> uh, Mel is a sweetheart. Yeah, you know, I mean, because, yeah, I've, I've seen some pretty cringy ones, but, yeah, Mel's like, best one I've seen this week. 
Well, that's a review, you know. <laughs> Before we wrap this up, where can uh, fans find out uh, more about you, like social media stuff or websites? Sure. On Instagram, you can follow me at Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-J, Weissman, W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N, Instagram, at Jeffrey J. Weissman. On Twitter, at J-E-F-1-F, Weissman, W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N. On Facebook, I have a fan page at Jeffrey Weissman Actor. I have a website that needs to be completely redone, but I still can get email from it. So JeffreyWeissman.com. If you want an autograph photo from the Scarecrow Mrs. King or Twilight Zone or Pale Rider or Back to the Future 2 or 3, um, just email me through uh, JeffreyWeissman.com. And uh, I've got, I recently did with my, uh, like I mentioned some alumni from high school, we, we did a pandemic version of Waiting for Godot, which is very, very funny and yet incredibly heartbreaking too. And yeah. that, that is currently looking for a home. We may be aligning ourselves with a theater company to release it, or we may be releasing it ourselves. So just follow my Twitter and Instagram. You'll find out about that. Um, I'm up for uh, a couple different projects that I can't talk about yet. Well, hopefully Space Beavers 2 um, or Beavers from Outer Space 2 is going to happen. We'll see. The, <laughs> the director of that is the one who put together Project 88. I don't know if you know about this, but as soon as the pandemic hit, over 300 Back to the Future fans from nine different countries did a scene that he cut up Back to the Future 2 in, into 88 scenes. And everyone had a week to shoot their scene, and he stitched it together. And it's online. If you look for Project 88, it's really fun, really fantastic. Some people use their kids or toys or whatever they had in quarantine to shoot their scenes, and it really came out fantastic. Um, I'm also currently prepping a, a scene or two for Remake of Back to the Future 1 with a bunch of fans who are who have cut it up into... 70 scenes or so you know where to find him folks the links will be in the episode description in case you forgot and you can find me over on twitter at moose media inc or at electronicmediacollective.com alongside other great podcasters jeff i want to uh, i want to thank you for uh stopping by and uh, bull spitting with me today well, look at my shirt i got bull spit all over it. yeah it's i'm a slobbering mess and folks a lot of good podcasts out there if you didn't hear it here Probably just slow to bull spit. Until next time, yeah. take her easy. Be well. Ooh, that sure was some bull spit. But I sure had fun. Junior, you need some help. Be sure to tune in next time. 